Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew, the first chapter, and we are, um, we are making the turn. We have been reading the Old Testament um, for, uh, for um, I don't know, since, since August sometime, uh, for the last several months, and now um, we are making the turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to begin in the first chapter um, with, the, with the story of how Joseph received the news uh, of the Messiah's birth. So Matthew, the first chapter, verses 18 through 25. Hear now the word of our Lord. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. When... um. I'm the oldest uh, of my brothers, and when, um, when my mother was pregnant with me, she was living in, um, as a house parent in the United Methodist Children's Home in Versailles, Kentucky, that were house parents. And she quickly discovered what a lot of, uh, a lot of pregnant women discover, um, that uh, the perfect strangers uh, feel they have the right to, uh, to touch your belly and, uh, and to ask you personal and invasive questions. Um, so uh, so uh, my mother was living uh, in this uh, religious community, really, uh, there at the Methodist Children's Home, uh, surrounded by all sorts of uh, examples uh, of what it meant to be, uh, to be a Christian. And there was one particular lady at the children's home um, who, uh, who came from a religious tradition where prophecy was very important. And, uh, and she styled herself a prophetess, um, someone who could um, sort of catch glimpses of the future. And so, um, and so this woman came, uh, this prophetess came, and she, uh, she placed um, her hand on my mother's belly when she was pregnant with me and began to prophesy. She said, This child um, will be uh, handsome and courageous. Don't start laughing yet. (laughs) 
Uh, this child will be a wise and charismatic leader. And this child will play the harp and sing like an angel. <laughs> now, I've always thought two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> but when it comes to prophecies, right, we don't want two out of three. We want them all to be fulfilled. In Bible study, we're reading these, um, uh, uh, these accounts of Jesus' birth. And, and one of the things we're talking about is, um, is just the role that prophecy plays throughout these narratives. In Matthew's narratives, it seems he stops every several verses to say, now, uh, now this uh, happened to fulfill um, the prophecy that such and such, right? Or um, in, in Luke's gospel, um, uh, angels show up. And, and, and give several um, prophecies. Um, uh, uh, strangers in the temple uh, begin to prophesy about all the things that Jesus um, uh, will, will be and mean. And we know from the Gospels that, um, that Jesus doesn't fulfill just two out of three of these prophecies. Um, uh, 100% is his rate. Our passage this morning... Is a prophecy that Joseph receives. Yet I've always felt like as far as prophecies go, as far as angelic experiences go, I've always felt like Joseph gets the short end of the stick. See, um, when, when you read these, uh, these, 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 these birth accounts, you see that, um, that, that, that the, the angels are showing up and they're giving, uh, uh, they're, they're giving people signs, uh, things that they, can, that they can hold on to, right? Um, uh, Mary has this, this beautiful experience where she meets a corporeal angel. In other words, an angel in the flesh, in the room with her, the angel Gabriel, right? He has a name uh, in, in, in Mary's story. And this angel prophesies all that this uh, all that this child will mean, and assures Mary um, that the child is that is, that is conceiving her is, is from the Holy Spirit. And if that weren't enough, when she goes to visit her her cousin um, uh, 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 Elizabeth, um, as soon as she walks through the room, um, Elizabeth's uh, child leaps in her womb. Sort of marking uh, that these that, that this prophecy is true and that it will come to pass. The shepherds think of the shepherds. They get um, they get also uh, not just a corporeal angel, but a whole choir of corporeal angels in the flesh, right? Um, uh, uh, singing glory to God and the highest peace on earth uh, on those whom His favor rests. And uh, and if that weren't enough. They give the shepherds a sign, a sign that you will know this prophecy is true, that, that the Messiah has been born. Go into town and you will see the strangest sight. You'll see a baby that has been wrapped in tight cloths and then placed in a feeding trough. Right? And that's not something you see every day. Right? That's a physical sign that you'll know that this, this angelic prophecy is coming to pass. Think of the Magi. Right? They, um, they, they come to learn of the prophecies um, uh, in Micah that, um, that, that the child will be born in Bethlehem. 
but they are led to that prophecy by a star that they see in the West, a, a, a physical sign in the heavens, right? Um, but Joseph, what does Joseph get? He gets a dream. He gets a dream, a vivid dream. One of those dreams that uh, takes a little bit, uh, takes a little while to, to melt away, right? One of those dreams you wake up from and for the first couple of minutes you're disoriented and you still feel like you're in the dream, but a dream no the less. Nonetheless, a dream that sort of dissipates by midday. Joseph is given no real sign. The angel, uh, the angel tells the prophecy, right? Um, uh, uh, you will name him Jesus because uh, he will save his people from their sins. That's an allusion to uh, Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, right? And Joshua is the one that uh, uh, delivers the Hebrew people. Um, uh, uh, brings them over to Jordan River and brings them into the promised land. And the angel is saying, you will call this baby Joshua, Jesus, because he will deliver his people. But no sign, no, and this is how you'll know, right? If I were telling the story, right, here's, here's how I'd do it, right? Um, uh, 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 Joseph has just had this dream, right? Just seen this angel. The angel flies off in the dream. And then he wakes up and he says, oh, it was just a dream. But then he finds a single feather on his pillow, right? And then he knows oh, the angel was really here, right? And he holds on to that feather. And he, and he pulls that feather out like everyone he meets, right? I was visited by an angel, right? That, that, that's how I would do it. If I were telling the story. But Joseph doesn't get any of that. He gets a dream. He gets, let's face it, a subjective experience. Right? Y'all know the difference. A subjective experience is an experience that's just like, that's like in the mind and in the heart. An objective experience is, is one with an object outside of you. Right? Like a corporeal angel or a, a star or, or a manger with a baby in it, like physical objects in the universe. Subjective experiences are in here and in here. And those are hard to trust. Those are hard to hold onto, aren't they? I think most religious experiences for most people are subjective experiences, aren't they? If we're honest. Right Now, I know the preacher says on Sunday, I was struggling about what to preach, but then God told me, right? Heard his voice in this ear. Danny, preach to them about paying their tithes, right? I, I know that's a story we tell, but, 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 but the, the, the truth is, the reality of it is, is the inspiration happens more like a kind of Kind of a bubbling up within you, right? It's more subjective, right? It's just this sort of sense we get about the topics we're supposed to address or talk about. It's more inward, right? Angels don't visit me and tell me what to preach on. I think the sermons would be better if they did, right? But that's not the experience I get. 
When some of you um, became Christians, you probably had um, a kind of subjective experience, right? You probably, um, maybe, uh, maybe uh, you went through confirmation and, and, and you felt a gradual warming of your heart through, through the experience of confirmation and that was an inward journey toward becoming a Christian. Maybe for some people it happens all at once, Right? Maybe, um, maybe it was in a church service and, um, and, the, and, the, and the preacher was calling out and there was an altar call and you felt something in your heart that made you stand up and, and, and you came down to the altar and, and, and you gave yourself to the Lord, right? And I'm not saying that was real, but what I am saying is that if we, if we had set a camera back in that corner, we wouldn't, we wouldn't see it, would we? It was an experience that happened in here, right? There'd be no video record of Jesus saving you, but, but, but you know that it happened because it happened in here. That's a subjective experience. Is everyone following me? And those are hard to hold on to. Those are hard to trust in the light of day, aren't they? When I was um, about... 17 years old, I went with some friends to a youth revival down at First Baptist Church. And they brought in this, uh, this really great speaker who was, who was really funny, really good at uh, uh, talking to teenagers. And the first night of the revival, everyone got saved, right? And so the second night, what was left to do? Um, and so they, uh, they, um, they, they the, the, I'll never forget, a call to ministry, if there's anyone in here, any young person in here who feels called to preach, who feels called to be a pastor, stand up. And I had something in me, working on me in that moment. And I stood up. I'm not even sure to this day whether I stood up voluntarily. I just sort of stood up. And I came forward and, and people laid hands on me. And a couple weeks later, I decided that I got caught up in the emotion of it all. And that I already had a plan for my life um, that involved going to college and, uh, and getting an English major and, and, and being an English teacher. It took me 15 years to come around to the fact God had called me to preach. Because I had this subjective experience, but I had no feather left on my pillow. Nothing that I could hold on to and put in my pocket. And those subjective experiences are hard to trust, hard to believe in, aren't they? We can talk ourselves out of them in a minute. There's a story of... Uh, an ethicist named Tom Cavanaugh. And Tom Cavanaugh went to um, go visit Mother Teresa at the um, uh, 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 Sisters of Mercy orphanage in Calcutta, India. And um, wanted, to really, uh, wanted to really pick her brain. And, and so he arrives, and, uh, and despite being well-published and well-known, uh, he has to take a number and wait because Mother Teresa is busy with some lepers and some orphans. And so um, when it's finally his turn uh, to be seen, 
Mother Teresa uh, approaches Tom Cavanaugh, puts his hands in hers, and says, how may I pray for you? And he's sort of taken aback by this question. He really hadn't uh, come with any prayer requests. And so sort of uh, trying to just figure out on the fly, you know, what, what he had to ask for. Well, he thought about all that was going on in his life and, and how he was trying to plot some of his next moves and, and he wasn't, you know. And so, so he said, pray that I would have clarity. He was really taken aback by her response. She said, no. No. She said, No. I won't pray that you have clarity. Clarity is the last thing you cling to. I will pray that you have faith. See, for Mother Teresa, faith is the opposite of clarity. See, sometimes we say doubt is the opposite of faith, right? If we have any questions, if we're unsure of things, well, that, that's the opposite of faith because a faith is a kind of spiritual clarity. And it's only those people that can keep that clarity in their head at all times that there are the people who, have really, who really have faith. But I think the opposite actually is, is true. Sometimes we have doubts. Sometimes we have questions. Sometimes we're stumbling around in the dark. But being obedient through that doubt being obedient through those questions and through those issues, putting one step foot in front of the other and making slow, steady progress through all of that. Trusting that you're going to come to the end of it and find the light. Well, that's, that's faith. Clarity is sometimes the enemy of faith. Boy, we would love that feather on the pillow that thing that we could hold on to, that tangible, corporeal evidence that God has talked to us. But that's not what we get, is it? I feel bad for Joseph because it seems to me that he was the one most in need of physical evidence, right? Of all the people in, in both Christmas narratives he has like the hardest pill to swallow, doesn't he? Right? He's betrothed to this girl named Mary. And betrothal isn't like, um, isn't like present day engagement, right? Present day engagement, um, well, I guess there's a ring, but there's no money exchange, nothing signed, right? Um, everyone can walk, uh, can walk away without a lawyer right up until the wedding day, Right? But that's not how betrothal worked in the ancient world. When, when, when a couple became betrothed, that was, that was a commitment, right? Money was exchanged. Um, uh, the proverbial uh, signage on the dotted line, the only way you got out of betrothal was divorce. Because what happened right after the betrothal is the man went home and began to prepare. He began to um, uh, build a house onto his father's house where, uh, where the two of them would live and where, they would, where they would have their family. He had skin in the game, other words. And so Joseph had some decisions to make when, um, when, when, when his, uh, his betrothed, who he's been away from, preparing 
turns up pregnant. Right? In my mind, there are three choices. Right? There's um, forgive and forget. Raise the baby as my own. That, that, that's, that, that's an option. There's messy public divorce. Right? That's how you get your money back. Drag her in front of the, the judge, say she was unfaithful. I know we make a lot about stoning, but, but that, really, that really didn't happen a lot in the first century. You know? but, um, but there was shunning. There was, um, uh, you know, for shame, for shame. There was your damaged goods. You're not getting married again. There was all of that kind of thing, right? And that, that's what happens in a, a messy public divorce so that's option two. Option three is quiet divorce. I write you a certificate. You're released. Go marry the father. No harm, no foul. And we're told because Joseph is a righteous man, that's what he decided to do. He'd made up his mind, and then he had, of all things, a dream. And then he wakes up. And he does what the angel commanded. That is obedience. That is faith. Absent clarity. That's amazing when you think about it. This subjective experience turns him around. He builds his life on that. Risks Everything on, on, on the angel, not just being a bad slice of pizza, but being real. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. The other thing I notice about Joseph is that all of the other people in both accounts get a speaking part, right? The Magi get a speaking role. King Herod gets a speaking role. Um, uh, uh, even the shepherds say, let us go and see this thing, right? They get a speaking part. Um, uh, Mary, Mary gets a solo, right? But Joseph never says a word about the whole narrative. Go back and read it this afternoon. He never says anything. Three times an angel tells him to do something in a dream, and each time he wakes up, and he does it. It's not eloquent. No big speech. No aria. Just quiet obedience. Y'all know people like that. They're not the one that's going to get up behind a, the podium and say something. They're not going to raise their hand in a meeting and rally the troops. But when it comes to actually stuff getting done, they're always there. They always show up. They're always can be counting on to do the right thing. That's the example Jesus grew up with. Quiet, one foot before the other. Obedience. I've come to learn and believe there is clarity and obedience. I've come in, 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 to learn and believe that, 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 that doing the thing 
is what brings the clarity. It's something that I I, I tried desperately um, uh, 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 to convince people that I was trying to convince to, to, to go to Nicaragua last summer. It's like, I can't answer all your questions. I can't give you perfect clarity. I can't. Uh, 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 dispel that that feeling in the pit of your stomach. I can tell you this, that if you get on the plane and you go, the clarity somehow comes through that. That that's the answer. That there's something in that quiet obedience that brings the clarity. Sometimes we don't get a feather, we don't get a star, we don't get a manger. We just have this sort of subjective notion. And that has to be enough. So here's my question for you this Christmas Eve. What dream has God given you? Maybe it's one like me you've been running away from for, for 15 years. Maybe you've got a dream that, that, uh, that dazzles you at night. It's all you can think about, this thing that, that, that God is calling you to. And, and, but, but then you wake up and you do the calculations and you look at the spreadsheet and you say, not today, I just can't make it work. What is the dream that God has given you? What is that thing that he is, a dream he's given for the church or for your work or for your life? He is laying on your heart but won't let you go. And you're still waiting for that feather on a pillow. What is it for you? And then maybe this Christmas Eve, Absent gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You can finally give the Christ child your trust. I believe that's all he really wants for Christmas. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.